0: A quick heads up before we get started. This episode contains a mention of suicide. Please take care while listening.
1: Three days after Ted Kaczynski was taken into custody, Kathy Puckett arrived at the 10 by 12 cabin up in the hills off Stemple Pass Road. Agents from the evidence team were there, moving in and out. Kathy stepped inside.
2: He had a bunk to the right uh, that had an army, green army blanket on it.
1: There was a wood-burning stove in one corner next to a chair that looked homemade.
2: And the wall, uh, the plywood wall that it was butted up to, there were images of his body and his body grease and things from, you know, I mean, he rarely washed. And so there were outlines of where he had sat for years against that wall and different outlines of his body.
1: When FBI agents first stepped into the cabin, They found shelves filled with dry goods and bomb-making materials. There were guides to edible wild plants and literary books, like Joseph Conrad's novel The Secret Agent, which is about a professor who quits academia, then launches an anti-science bombing campaign. One of Ted's rifles, a .30-06, hung on the wall above his bed, with a detailed note he'd written about how to properly calibrate the sighting. An old-timey string instrument called a zither hung nearby on a nail. There were a couple of jackets, too, including a faded and tattered blue hoodie.
2: The first thing I thought was, he never saw us coming, or he would have gotten rid of this stuff. There was a big box of wood, of firewood, at the foot of his bed that actually turned out to be steps that went up to a loft. which was full of evidence. I don't know if you've ever helped a relative move after they've been living somewhere for 30 years and they're kind of a hoarder. There are layers and layers and layers of life that have just accumulated there. But I thought, 25 years he's been in here. You know, I was just, I, I, I couldn't see enough.
1: Kathy's main job was to comb through 25 years of Ted's writing around 40,000 pages worth of stuff. The evidence team removed it all from Ted's cabin, made copies, then delivered them to Kathy.
2: I always called them the porcupine papers because a lot of them, you know, there might be pages of a recipe for porcupine stew.
1: Kathy says she barely slept for the next couple of weeks. She'd spend all day immersed in the journals, then go back to her motel room at night with words from Ted's diaries floating through her head as she went to sleep.
2: It really was like walking through his mind. He led you completely into his head. And it was the the most intimate portrait, I think, that he painted because he was so alone and he was the only one he was talking to. This was a, a diary to himself in a lot of ways. It was magnificent.
1: As Kathy spent day after day digging into the complete works of Theodore John Kaczynski, David Kaczynski was doing the same. In part, this was at the request of Ted's defense lawyers in preparation for his upcoming trial. But it was also more personal and agonizing.
3: I remember once the uh, defense team parked me in a hotel for a week with about 40,000 pages of my brother's diaries that I'd never read before, and I'm, you know, I'm so sort of reading these diaries and trying to process how did Ted get like this? I, this is a Ted I don't know. Um, you know, it's just a, just a constant sort of wondering. And then, was I the best brother I could have been? You know, maybe he had to be turned in, but maybe I could have helped him earlier. was probably his closest relationship um throughout his adulthood and we lived except for a couple of years we lived thousands of miles apart only communicated through letter um he was sort of in a his cabin became an echo chamber for this spiraling um into negativity
1: Ted had gone into the woods seeking solitude and peace. Instead, he found isolation and torment, his ideas about the evils of civilization growing louder inside his head. But once the manifesto was published and he was unmasked as the Unabomber, he wasn't alone with his thoughts anymore. There was a public out there, engaging with him, trying to figure out what do we make of this man's ideas? What do we make of him? This is Project Unibomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Eric Benson. This is our final episode. Episode 8, Echo Chamber. In April 1995, five months before the publication of the manifesto, Ted sent a letter to the New York Times. It arrived on the same day that his 16th and final bomb killed the California logging lobbyist Gilbert Murray. He wrote that his goal was the destruction of the worldwide industrial system. His bombing campaign was meant to, quote, promote social instability in industrial society, propagate anti-industrial ideas, and give encouragement to those who hate the industrial system. A lot of people read those words and thought, this guy is nuts. The destruction of the worldwide industrial system? It sounds like something a James Bond villain would cackle. And also, he was going to bring modern civilization to its knees by sending one bomb a year to some unlucky professor or businessman? Ted may not have decimated the global order, But he was right about his ability to spread the word and reach fellow travelers.
4: Oh, I wrote to him almost immediately after his arrest.
1: This is John Zierzan. He's a former 1960s campus radical, and he still looks like one. Shaggy white hair, a full beard, wire-rimmed glasses. But over the years, he went from leftist radical to leftist skeptic, evolving into a self-described anarchist and technophobe. That might be why his tape sounds so bad he had trouble hooking up his computer to record this interview. By the spring of 1996, when Zerzan reached out to Ted, he was a well-established writer himself, attracted to following, preaching a gospel that wasn't all that different from the Unabombers. But Zierzan got published in underground journals. Ted had managed to get published in the Washington Post.
4: I wanted to pursue what he was thinking, what he was writing, what, uh, you know, again, the ideas. Also, the technical stuff, but how do you, uh, how, how do you or how do we get these ideas out there, make them accessible, have them be part of the conversation in society?
1: Ted wrote back and a friendship started. By that point, Ted's case was moving through federal court. He'd been indicted in June for transporting and mailing explosive devices with intent to kill, and pled not guilty. Then Attorney General Janet Reno decided to go all in. The government would be pushing for the death penalty. For David, it was crushing.
3: I was feeling very upset. Um, You know, we had done what we had done to prevent loss of life. You know, we'd been collaborating, working very closely with the government, and now the government was on the other side. They said, well, listen, there has to be one more death, David, and I'm sorry, but it's got to be
1: your brother. But Ted was going to get some of the best federal public defenders in the country. One of his attorneys was Judy Clark, who was on her way to becoming a legendary anti-death penalty attorney. Clark famously doesn't speak to the media, but John Zierzan got to know her back then. He started visiting Ted in jail in the spring of 1997, about a year after his arrest. Zierzan says that every time he showed up, Ted's lawyers were there. They told him that as long as they were in the room— the meeting was protected under attorney-client privilege. So if Ted said something incriminating while he was talking with John, it was okay. It would be protected.
4: And that made sense to me. But that wasn't the reason. The reason was they wanted to spy on me to make sure I'm not trying to get him to do a political trial. That was absolutely the last thing that they wanted because they were, I would say, death penalty liberals all the way. That's exactly who they were.
1: What he means is, Judy Clark and her team, their only goal was to keep Ted alive. And letting Ted turn the courtroom into a lecture hall, talking about Jacques Ellul and prehistoric hunter-gatherer societies? That wasn't going to sway a jury. Clark and her team were in a bind from the start. Ted's cabin had basically been a full confession in physical form. He'd written down everything—accounts of the bombings, notes on his experiments as he constructed each new device— there was a master copy of the manifesto in the attic, next to the famous Smith Corona typewriter. What could Ted's lawyers do? They settled on what is known as a mental defect defense. They'd argue that Ted had delusions and paranoia that rendered him incapable of actually intending murder. This wasn't some cynical ploy, like pretending a wily mafia boss is mentally unfit because he's shuffling around the neighborhood in his bathrobe and slippers. Concerns about Ted's mental health were decades old. His parents had talked about it when he was a teenager. David had grown increasingly worried as Ted's letters to him became more vindictive and cruel. In the early 90s, David and Linda even talked with a psychiatrist about the possibility of having Ted hospitalized. But did Ted have a mental defect? The experts hired by the defense who examined Ted in person diagnosed him as having schizophrenia, paranoid type. They based their diagnosis, at least in part, on his extreme anti-technology views. Ted refused to meet with the government's experts, so they had to make their assessments solely on Ted's writings. And they didn't see mental illness. One said Ted's mind screamed geek, not schizophrenic. Kathy Puckett was working closely with the government team. Based on this case and and your reading, what, what do you think? Was he mentally ill?
2: Well... He was certainly emotionally disturbed and had, had uh, a personality— I think he had a severe personality disorder. Um, I tended to side with the psychiatrists, uh, Drs. Uh, Dietz and Resnick.
1: Park Dietz and Philip Resnick. They were the forensic psychiatrists hired by the government.
2: They essentially took my 300 pages of excerpts from all of the writings. I put them all in chronological order for them. Um... They didn't see any evidence of psychosis.
1: And specifically, they didn't think Ted met the criteria for paranoid schizophrenia.
2: It's a cognitive disorder where um, there's an impairment in the ability to know what's real and what isn't real. And I didn't ever see any evidence of that. I saw a very, very reasoned and an ability to see the world as it was, and he didn't like it.
1: As the trial approached, John Zierzan continued to visit Ted in jail. According to Zierzan, Ted didn't know what his defense team was up to. Ted told John he was mostly agnostic about what strategy his lawyers used, with one exception.
4: Well, the only thing I insist on is it's not an insanity defense. Anything else you can think of, any other stuff, uh, go for it, but, but not that. And that's precisely what they were doing.
1: So as jury selection began, Zierzan says he intervened. He called me one day,
4: and I said, Ted, there's something you gotta know, man. Uh, this is a insanity defense straight up. (laughs) And he said, I'll never forget, he said, why the lying bastards? You know, he was shocked uh, that they were fucking him over.
1: Ted's anger was easy to understand for Zierzan.
4: Because he said, uh, this would make a mockery of these ideas. If I'm a psychotic uh, killer, the uh, only reason uh, these deaths happen is that I'm a, I'm psychotic. Well, so much for the arguments, they don't exist. It just proves the dominant story that he was just a killer and a madman, and, you know, out of a cord, and uh, that's all.
1: In late November 1997, during jury selection, Ted was sitting at the defense table as he heard one of his attorneys discussing a plan to use his psych evaluations as evidence in the trial. He appeared to be furious. He threw a pen at his legal team. It only got stranger from there. Six weeks later, on the first day of the trial, he torpedoed the proceedings as soon as the judge stepped up to the bench. I want to address the issue of my attorneys, Ted announced from his seat. Ted was upset with his attorneys, but by the end of the day, he'd agreed to continue being represented by them. Two days later, he changed his mind. He wanted to argue in court he had to send bombs through the mail because he thought it would bring down the industrial system and ultimately save untold lives from the escalating horrors of technology. To pursue that new strategy, Ted told the judge he would need to fire his legal team and replace them with another lawyer.
2: And the judge had denied that. And in his desperation, uh, that night, he tried to hang himself in the holding cell with his underwear. He twisted it into a knot and tried to hang himself, and they found him in time. But it became a huge news story.
3: The information that we received from the U.S. Marshal was that when he arrived at the courthouse this morning, he had a red mark on the right side of his neck and had no underwear. Uh, When questioned... He said he lost his underwear in the shower. Uh,
1: The morning after the suicide attempt, Judy Clark told the judge that Ted wanted to represent himself, that he couldn't endure hearing his legal team describe him as mentally deficient. The judge said he'd considered Ted's request. Then he ordered his own psychiatric evaluation. That psychiatrist found that Ted was quite possibly schizophrenic, but was also competent to represent himself. He had a, quote, excellent factual understanding of the legal proceedings. But when the trial reconvened, the judge decided essentially that the psychiatric evaluation he ordered didn't matter. He'd had enough. Ted's request to represent himself had come too late. He accused Ted of trying to manipulate the legal system and said a defense strategy based around the evils of technology was almost certain to result in Ted being executed. One of Ted's lawyers spoke up Ted would plead guilty without conditions, meaning Ted had surrendered his right to appeal the verdict. The government withdrew their pursuit of the death penalty. The trial was over before it started. At sentencing, three months later, Ted refused to apologize for his 18-year bombing campaign. He said, I ask only that people reserve judgment on me and the Unabomber case. The victims and their families did not. Ted sat stone-faced as Lois Epstein, Charles Epstein's wife, told him from the stand that hatred had mangled and distorted his mind. Susan Moser, Thomas Moser's widow, pleaded to the judge that he, please keep this creature out of society forever. Bury him so far down he'll be closer to hell, because that's where the devil belongs. John Zierzan wasn't in the packed courtroom that day, but he saw Ted afterwards in jail and asked what happened.
4: He said, basically, what well, was the damnedest thing? They just brought in all these relatives and stuff of people that were injured or killed. And all this emotional stuff, they were moaning about this, they were crying and weeping and wailing and saying all this stuff. And what was the point of that? The agreement had already been made. Like, he couldn't grasp that. And I'm thinking to myself, Ted, you offed uh, so and so's husband or whoever, and you know you don't think they <laughs> had some emotional reaction. I mean, it just it just struck me as very cold. I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to go, you was know, Like, <laughs> come on, man, are you kidding?
1: By that point, even many hardcore anarchists were leery of Ted. This guy couldn't just appoint himself to be a one-man execution squad on behalf of the enemies of technology. But Zirzan didn't see it that way. To him, all the attention being paid to Ted was an opportunity. And the anti-tech activists who wanted to distance themselves from the Unabomber just didn't have the courage of their convictions.
4: I tried to take advantage to to push the ideas out there. You know, for Christ's sake, what else would you do? They just wouldn't. When when journalists would ask them about it, well, you people are anti-technology. You know what do you think about the uh, Unabomber deal? And oh, they just freaked the fuck out. They just ran for cover. Yeah, I thought that was pathetic. Here's your one chance to to say something when people are listening, and, and you're too, You're just pissing in your pants instead of saying something.
1: Kathy Puckett was in the courtroom when Ted was sentenced, but she'd found a different kind of closure during the trial. For two years, ever since David angrily hung up on her on the day of the raid, feeling betrayed that his name had been leaked to the press, she hadn't spoken to him. But in the courtroom, they couldn't avoid each other.
2: He looked over at me, and he had the most concerned look on his face. And then he started moving toward the center aisle, And I got up and started moving toward the center aisle and most of the press was out on recess and most of the attendees were out on recess. The jury wasn't there. And he walked up to me and shook his head with this sad smile. And we just hugged each other, big hug. I said, I'm so sorry that, you know, this has been so tough on you guys and you know that that's not what I wanted for you. And he said, I know. He said, I'm I'm sorry for what I said to you. And I said, you know, thank you once again for everything you did for us. And he said, well, thank you too.
1: When the trial was over, Ted was taken to ADX Florence, the federal supermax prison in Colorado where he spent the next 23 years. You might think his legacy would be cemented, a mass murderer living out the rest of his life in solitary confinement, one of the most infamous pariahs of American history. But he has his fans. In the archive at the University of Michigan, there are boxes and boxes full of letters written to Ted while he's been sitting in federal custody. A whole lot of them, probably most of them, are from everyday, presumably nonviolent people who see Ted Kaczynski as a kind of persecuted martyr and all-purpose guru. There's one from an activist who says they are currently living 20 feet off the ground, in a tree named Happy, in order to save an old-growth forest. I support the cause you are fighting for and totally agree with it, the letter writer tells Ted. There's one from a college student who asked Ted's opinion on the political rise of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, then writes, I feel oddly more comfortable bringing up questions of intellectually sensitive material to you rather than the meek audience prevalent in the oppressively coddling environment of modern centers of higher education. Another kid tells Ted, I'm thinking of dropping out of school. My friend Eddie said I should write to you and see what you think of my plan. Some people have gone beyond admiration. For a while, a Mexican terrorist group sent bombs in the mail to scientists and published communiques that were basically paraphrases of Ted's writings. And Norwegian white supremacist Anders Breivik, who murdered 77 people in a killing spree, plagiarized and then twisted whole passages from the Unabomber's manifesto for his own manifesto. But Ted's ideas have also been turned into innocuous internet memes. There are teens on TikTok using images of Ted in the cabin to advocate that we should, quote, hashtag return to monkey. The late fashion designer Virgil Abloh was photographed wearing a t-shirt with the forensic sketch of the Unabomber. Someone even used vocal modification technology to make it sound like Tucker Carlson and Ronald Reagan are reading Industrial Society and its future.
3: The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread
0: psychological suffering, in the third world to physical suffering as well.
1: Of course, the idea that technology is having an ever more destructive effect on our species isn't very surprising. I hear people saying stuff like this all the time. Technology is destroying us. Our modern lives are fundamentally sick. YouTube and Facebook and subreddits and Fox News have destroyed any shared sense of truth. And we are all with our consumption, our waste, our relentless burning of fossil fuels, pushing the planet to the point of no return. Scientists say the planet is warming faster than at any time in at least 2,000 years. Multiple feet of sea level rise, huge food supply disruptions, mass die-offs in the ocean. There
3: is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, 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 blah.
1: And it's all screwing with our heads. And the overlords of Silicon Valley seem to want to make it worse. 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. In a lot of
4: ways, it's kind of like a Fitbit in your skull with tiny wires. So as you can see, uh, we have
1: a healthy and happy pig. And that's how we're going to represent ourselves in the metaverse. Last fall, I went to visit one of my best friends. He'd recently moved off the grid onto an overgrown property in the woods. It was far less isolated than Ted's land in Montana, or David's in Texas, and my friend wasn't alone. He lived there with his longtime partner. But forsaking technological society? He's done some of that, and he's thought even more about it. He knew I was making a podcast about the Unabomber, and as I was leaving, he handed me a book to read. It was short, slender, a book of letters from the mid-1920s, written by an Italian-born German theologian named Romano Guardini. I started flipping the pages when I got home, and I kept finding passages like this. Thus, a technique of controlling living people is developing. It is constructed rationally and embodied in a monstrous system. For most of us, The possibility of a free development and central shaping of the person has disappeared. It could have been lifted straight from the manifesto, except it was written 70 years earlier. It may be tempting to look at every screwed up development in our times and think the Unabomber was right, that Ted was prophetic, that his dystopian predictions for our world have come true. But that's giving him too much credit. Ted's ideas aren't original. They're old. The Manifesto is filled with the same kinds of things people have been saying about technology for as long as machines have been around. The thing that made Ted unique, the reason we're still talking about him today, is that he claimed those ideas as justification for murder. But for all of Ted's efforts to present the Manifesto as a revolutionary document and himself as the inspiration for a movement, so many of the actions he took in his life... Nonviolent ones, like moving into a tiny cabin in the woods. And violent ones, like trying to blow up an airliner with 80 people aboard because he hated hearing jets flying overhead. They came down to a powerful, very personal desire. Leave me alone. There's an unsent letter in the Michigan Archive from 2017. It was a response to someone who had written to him. They said they were working on the Discovery Channel miniseries, Manhunt Unabomber. And they were wondering why he didn't engage in sabotage instead of murder. Blow up bridges in science labs, that kind of thing. Wouldn't doing that, instead of randomly murdering people in their homes, have drawn more followers to his cause? Ted's reply, your suggestion that this could have been done without killing or maiming people is downright silly. What do you suppose would have happened to the people driving across a highway bridge when it was blown up? To the people on a train that got derailed? To the people living downstream of a dam? Use your head, man. Then Ted asked why anyone is even bothering to make a series about the notorious Unabomber. My bombing campaign ended 22 years ago. My trial was completed 19 years ago. Yet all through the intervening years, over and over and over again, ad nauseam, the media keep putting on these programs about me. Why? Being the Unabomber's brother had taken a toll on David Kaczynski. The strain of the manhunt. The pain of Ted's learning David was the one who turned him in. All the unwanted notoriety once the news became public. I just felt
3: Kind of a a bit like a victim myself, and, you know, I would, of course, vent to Linda about this. And Linda, I remember, one time says, David, don't you understand? There are people who've lost their dearest loved ones. There are people whose lives will be changed forever.
1: This isn't all about you. You're not the only (laughs) victim here. So in the months before Ted's trial, David tried to do something about all the suffering.
3: You know, Linda and I talked about it again, and we decided that we, we, we would like to write some letters of apology at least. And so we did our best, you know, apologizing. You know, we, we didn't want to ask for anything in return just to say how much regret we had about uh, the pain they had suffered and their losses. And uh, I think we sent out about 12 or 13 letters. And there were a couple of gracious responses, but most, mostly there was silence. Um, And so I, I felt this almost a double sense of loss, the loss of my brother, but also the loss of connection to, you know, humanity, which my brother had attacked.
1: There was one victim's address that David wasn't able to find. Gary Wright, the owner of the computer store in Salt Lake City. The guy who picked up a device next to a parked car and was blown across his parking lot and spent years having shards of wood removed from his body. Eventually, David managed to track down Gary's phone number.
3: I remember picking up the phone. I, I think my finger was kind of shaking as I'm dialing the number. I'm dialing Gary's number and kind of planned what I planned to say and have it all ready. And, and then the you know phone stops ringing at the other end. And I hear a voice that said, you've reached the right house at the wrong time. So it was a phone message, and I didn't know. You know I hadn't prepared how to leave a message. I just says, you know, I, my name is David Kaczynski. I, I think you know who I am. I, I wonder if we might talk. And I'll, I will try calling you back in a few days.
1: Voicemails. Maybe the most awkward technology that our technological society ever created. Later, David called back and got Gary on the phone.
0: He basically was just saying that he wanted to apologize on behalf of his family um, for what had happened. This is Gary. And I can remember telling him after I listened to it, I, I just said, Dave, you know, you can't own this. And, you know, you're going to have to let it go. There's, you know, one person doesn't represent a family. Mm. I just told him, you know, I've been going through this a long time, uh, a lot longer than you. And I've had to come to some conclusions, basically, is what I was trying to impart on him. I mean, I you gotta know, I've been going through this for over nine years at that point, and had um, had to come to some very interesting conclusions for myself. I mean, what if I never knew who this was? And at about year six, had to kind of decide that I would forgive a ghost. Um, those sorts of things. So a, a lot of introspection, if you will. But. I could tell from his demeanor um, how vulnerable that felt.
1: David and Gary have become close since that first phone call. For years, they traveled together, did events, fighting against the death penalty, talking about recovering from violence and tragedy. And more than that, they've just been friends in public. There's something almost a little hokey about the idea of their bond like some studio execs tacked it on to the end to leave viewers with a sense of hope. But this is real life and their friendship is profound. David has said on many occasions, including to me, that Gary has become a new brother for him. David's relationship with his own brother, of course, more or less ended in 1989, when David told Ted he was moving in with Linda. But even after Ted was sentenced to life in prison, David kept writing, sending him holiday greetings, birthday cards, and the occasional book. Ted has never written back. Their mother Wanda kept trying, too. I found several of her letters to Ted in the archive. They're short, cheerful, almost like postcards you'd send your kid at camp. Thanksgiving, 1999, Wanda sends Ted a care package. Dear Ted, something to help in keeping you occupied over the holidays. Ted annotates it for the researcher. With this note, the stupid sent me crossword puzzle books and the like, which of course I threw out. A few years later, Wanda sends Ted a note, saying she admires how he's always come to the defense of the powerless. Children, minorities, migratory workers. Ted's take. My mother must be getting senile. I have never taken any interest in causes of this kind. There's more, most just a few sentences, conveying her love and support. Ted never responded to any of them. The last came in 2011. Wanda was 94. It was sent a few months before her death. It's the shortest of all. Dear son, as always, I love you. Mother. Ted did not add an annotation. Okay. Could you tell us where we are? what we're looking at. A few months ago, I met up with David. Oh, we're in the
3: Texas hill country. Um, We're on a veranda overlooking um, kind of a a ridgeline of hills covered with junipers and um, some lovely rolling fields. Used to be working ranches at one time, now mostly uh, divided into somewhat smaller guest ranches. It's a very quiet, Peaceful, lovely place with a—today has a, just a bluest sky you could imagine. Um, kind of undeveloped, a kind of place that
1: I like to wander in. The place where we were wandering was the spiritual center-slash-dude ranch that David and Linda were helping to build. While I was there, Linda was painting the walls of a utilitarian wood cabin to transform it into a bright, colorful yoga studio. And David toured me around the property, showing off the herd of free-roaming horses, pointing to plans for new buildings. He was wearing a baseball cap with the words, Go Kind. When we were walking around, um, uh, one one thought that I have often had through this project is, what would Ted say about this? Way too
3: overdeveloped. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, I think we both had a kind of uh, real affinity for places, real wilderness. This is not real wilderness by any stretch. Human beings have lived here for a long, long time. Um, You know, I've seen changes out in the desert um, that have kind of challenged me because, um, you know, development, it it seems like such a unique place. Why, Why build more houses? Why put in more roads?
1: A few weeks before I visited David... News had broken that Ted had been moved from the Supermax prison in Colorado to a federal medical facility in North Carolina, a place for inmates suffering from serious illness. David called the Bureau of Prisons to find out more.
3: But the Bureau of Prisons couldn't tell me anything about his condition, so I I still do not know. So I'm left with a lot um, of worry, a lot unresolved, Um, and now to realize, gosh he you know he's sick
1: the day after I met up with David someone on Reddit posted a letter Ted had written from the North Carolina medical facility in it he said he had terminal cancer he'd been given no more than two years to live I was actually the one to tell David about the letter he was upset but not surprised he'd heard rumors Ted had cancer and was already reckoning with the fact that he'd be the last member of their family alive.
3: He had always lived such a, you know, sort of pure life and took care with his health. Never smoked, never drank. Always was physically fit. I thought, well, he'll probably outlive me. Um, Now, really don't know. So so I have written to him at... uh, the medical facility in Butner, North Carolina. Tried to be as loving and honest as I knew how. I don't know how many more chances I'll get. And whether he reads the letters or not, I honestly don't
1: even know. We were sitting in the new community he was helping to build, listening to the wind rustle through the live oak trees. And one thing that was really striking was that David wasn't the Unabomber's brother there. He was just David, another aging Buddhist westerner lending a hand where needed. This place was another fresh start in a life that was full of them. And David got that. He just published a book of poetry, which he gave me. It's his first. It's called Beginnings. But he couldn't totally let go of what he called the Unabomber Saga, much as he might want to. It seems like you... On the one hand, you don't want it in your life. You want to, you know, you want to move on. You don't want to deal with this. But then you find yourself going back, invited back, actually wanting to pursue some of these things. So I'm curious if you've thought about that. No, I don't think I have a choice about um, um,
3: removing it from my life. It's certainly a part of my life and a very important part of my life. Um, I think I'm at a different stage in life now, which is more internal, meditative. Um, You know, the last words have never been spoken. And I guess I'd like to own those words, if there are words for the end of it.
1: You've been listening to Project Unibom. Project Unibom is an Apple original podcast, produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by our senior producer, Jonathan Menhivar, and me, I'm Eric Benson. Our producers are Elliot Adler and Melissa Slaughter. Editing by Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung Kaiser. Our fact-checker is Sarah Ivry. The episode was mixed by Davy Sumner, Jason Richards, Elliot Adler, and Jonathan Manhevar. Studio recording by Brian Standifer at the Texas Monthly Studio. Our artwork is by Guillaume Casasus. Music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips and Jeff Baxter. Thank you to Joel Batterman for research help at the Joseph A. Labadee Special Collections Library at the University of Michigan. Legal Services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochets. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. If you live in the U.S. and are having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 800-273-TALK. Thanks for listening.